You're listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. And so grateful to have you. Next Sunday is the uh, anniversary of the Corona Apocalypse. And so uh, we're going to celebrate that by uh, springing forward another hour so that you can lose an hour of sleep. And so I uh, just want you to be aware of that, that it is Spring Forward Sunday next Sunday. So uh, you are welcome for that. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. Let's stand one more time as we read God's Word. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And the Bible says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed and leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You may be seated. Father, we need you this morning. How desperately do we need you? Every hour we need you. Help us today, Lord, to understand and comprehend what it means to love you and to love others. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you know your neighbors? How many of you, actually let me put it a better way, how many of you trust your neighbors? Uh, A recent survey was done uh, last year that said that less than half of Americans trust their neighbors. Uh, I live in a great neighborhood in Deberry, and it kind of reminds me of Mayberry. Uh, We have kids that just run in and out all in our neighborhood. It's it's really a great place. But you know, we are living in a society that has kind of lost what it means to be a neighbor. Most people don't know what it means to be a good neighbor. The National Homeowners Association put together recently 10 commandments of neighbor etiquette. So let me just share them with you this morning. Number one, do get to know your neighbor's names. Take initiative to wave at them and talk, talk to them when you see them. So know who your neighbors are. 57% of Americans know only some of their neighbors. Second commandment, do not peek through the blinds to see what your neighbors are up to at all times. Three, do keep your entrance, yard, and exterior of your home appealing and clutter-free. 
do not leave your holiday decorations up for a prolonged period of time. Do not play loud music and have noisy parties in the late hours of the night. But do invite your neighbors over for get-togethers. Seven, do not let your pets wander freely through the neighborhood and always clean up after them. Eight, do offer help to your neighbor when you see them in need of help. Nine, do return all borrowed items quickly with gratitude. Number 10, do not park in front of your neighbor's house or your neighbor's driveway or anything in the front of your neighbor's without asking them. That's a personal one. I added that one. (laughs) If you are feeling convicted this morning, good, this message is for you. We're looking at what it means to be a disciple. A definition that we've talked about is a disciple is someone who follows Jesus in faith and lifestyle and helps others do the same. Jesus has been training his disciples to be disciples to make disciples. And one of the things that we've tried to share is that God wants to use you to bring heaven to those who are around you. Uh, One of the things that you see in Luke's gospel is in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, the Bible says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Jesus knows the cross is impending. Only a third of the way into the gospel of Luke, and Jesus is already beelining to the cross. And yet on the way to the cross, he knowing that his time is short, he's teaching his disciples how to be disciples through everyday life and everyday interactions. And so this morning, we're going to look at a series, actually a new series within a series of messages of what Jesus tells us of what it means to be a disciple. This week, uh, we're going to learn uh, that Jesus is going to teach that what it means to follow him is it means to be a good neighbor. It means to be a good neighbor. So the question you may ask is, how can we do that? And I think we learn how to do that, not necessarily by what you may think, but Jesus is going to answer that question by answering three questions that we see in this text. The first question we're going to ask of this text, and what is asked in this text, is this, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, the Bible says in verse 25 that a lawyer, uh, not somebody that works for Morgan & Morgan, uh, a guy that was a scholar of the Torah, a guy that understood the law, was a, was a theological, biblical scholar, a legal expert, the Bible says that a lawyer stood up. Now, when, uh, when a rabbi was teaching, everyone would be, he would be seated and everyone would be seated, and if you wanted to ask a question of the rabbi, you would stand up as a form of deference. It's kind of like in our day, we raise our hands. It's just a form of respect to the rabbi, to the teacher. So we see here that the Bible says that the lawyer stood up, Jesus was seated, he was talking and teaching, he asks a question. Jesus says, what is your question? Well, we understand a little bit more about this question by what the writer Luke tells us about this lawyer, that this lawyer stood up not as a form of deference, but he had an ulterior motive. His motive was to put Jesus to the test. He wasn't sincerely trying to learn from Jesus. He had no real respect for Jesus, only deceit. He wanted to trap Jesus in this moment to expose Jesus. Why did he want to trap Jesus to expose him? Because Jesus had the audacity to love and welcome people who disobeyed the law. How dare Jesus love Sinners. 
And so he stood up asking this question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there seems to be some oxymoronicness in that. Uh, what must I do to inherit anything? Well, you must be born to the right parents, right? Uh, or you must be good to your parents. But what must I do to inherit eternal life. He comes to Jesus, the well-respected rabbi who has this mass crowd, this following, and in his mind, he asked this question already thinking what the answer would be. You know, some people ask questions not because they really want to know, but they already have the answer in their mind. They're just looking to see how you squirm in the midst of them asking you this question. And if you've never experienced that, you've probably never really taught very many people because in teaching, people will ask crazy questions or questions in which uh, they already have the answer already figured out in their mind because this lawyer probably had in his mind that Jesus was going to say something like this. Well, son, it really doesn't matter how you live. The law doesn't really matter. God will just accept you for you. So you just go be you and it will all work out in the end. That's what he supposed Jesus was going to say to him because in his mind, he suspected that Jesus didn't respect the law because of how he acted towards those who broke the law. But yet this question that this guy asked is probably one of the most basic and fundamental religious questions of all religions. How can I know that I'm going to heaven? How can I know that I'm right with God? How can I know that I can inherit eternal life? This question is on everyone's heart because everyone dies. This man, like many, however, believed and assumed that he could do something to get eternal life. He thought that heaven was a payment for services rendered. And so Jesus takes this question from this guy. And by the way, Jesus knew his heart. And then he asks a question of this guy. Well, what is written in the law? He answers the question with a question. Uh, some people say uh, that this is a great way to do evangelism. They call it questioning evangelism. Someone asks you, how is it that you can believe that, uh, that God would send anyone to hell? Uh, how is it that they would do that? And then you can maybe respond, well, do you not believe that there's a heaven or hell? Rather than answering a question that someone proposes to you that may be difficult or something that they already have ulterior motives, you ask them a question to get their opinion, and it disarms them. So here Jesus, who gives, uh, asks a question to the guy who was an expert of the law. Well, what is in the law? And basically what Jesus was asking is he was saying, well, how would you summarize the law? The law of Moses, the Torah, uh, was 613 laws. Um, and so Jesus says, what does the law require? Jesus wasn't asking him to read the law. How does it succinctly go? What does the Bible say? Well, the lawyer says in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. He, he's quoting the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And then he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Now, we're sitting here listening to that and say, well, bingo, you're, you're right. And here's the thing I want you to understand. When we read this, we think, well, maybe this guy really is smarter than we think. Well, no, he's not really as smart as we think because that was, according to scholars in that day, the succinct answer to that question. It was what the scholars, what the biblical scholars had already surmised was the two greatest commandments. It was the summary of the law. And so when this guy gives this answer, this wasn't anything new or novel here. We are to love God supremely. That is, we are to love God so much that he dominates our thoughts, he dominates our joys, our affections, our lives, and our priorities. 
It is the number one commandment because if you break this commandment, you'll break the other commandments. It is the paramount commandment. It is the commandment in which we as creatures should owe to the one who created us, that we are to love God supremely. And then secondly, we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we are to care about our neighbor's needs as much as we care about our own needs, that we're to rejoice in their happiness, have concern about their futures, weep about their sorrows just as we would our very own. Now, here's the question. How many of you all do that completely, 100%, without any sinful error? No, I didn't think you did, and neither do I. But yet Jesus says in verse 28, there's so much more I would love to say, maybe another day I'll come back to this text, but Jesus says in verse 28, you've answered correctly. You get a cookie. That was in the Allen version here, but basically it's an A plus here. Jesus then looks at this guy who asked his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He answers his own question by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you are right, go and do likewise, and you will live. Do this, and you will live. That's a huge do. That's a big do right there. In other words, Jesus here is saying that if you want eternal life, then perfectly love God and perfectly love others at the standard that God requires. So you say, well, pastor, are you telling me that Jesus is teaching that we are saved by works? Well, yes, he is. Here's what that way is. If you're going to choose the way of works, if you want to choose that I'm going to be my own savior, then here's how you have to do it. The one way of works to get eternal life is you have to, you have to 100% perfectly, total, complete obedience at all times forever. So if you want to work your way to heaven, you have to 100% at all times love God supremely and love others as you love yourself and never have one moment where you have a bad hair day. Oh, and by the way, if any of you have broken it before, you're toast. But that's what Jesus says, right? If you want to be saved by you doing it, then you got to do it 100% perfect. So then, verse 29, we're now going to get the second question. Verse 29, the Bible says that the lawyer desiring to justify himself, he just got exposed. Jesus just exposed him. The room got warmer. He has to find a way to not look so bad. He had the right answer, but he could not meet the standard that he himself said was the standard. He couldn't meet the standard of the Bible, but here's something else, and here's what you have to understand yourself. You can't even meet your own standard. If you were to go around for the rest of your life with a tape recorder, and every time you said someone ought to do this, or this is the way things should be, and you were to, every time it was to be recorded, and you were to play back every time in your life where you said somebody should be doing this that they're not doing, or they ought to do this, or life should be this way, if you were to play that back, you're not even meeting your own standards let alone God's. And so what this guy should have done in this moment is he should have just raised his hand and says, I can't do this. Have mercy on me, God. But guess what? He didn't. He wanted to justify himself. He didn't want to look so bad in front of Jesus. So what does he do? He asked this question. The question is this, who then is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He doesn't even ask about loving God supremely. He, he gets to the second one. 
And so he has pressure here. And being a lawyer, he wanted the exact definition so that he could check it off of his box. See, as, a, as an attorney, he wanted to find a loophole in the law. He wanted a limit to his love. See, words have meanings. Words can be interpreted differently. So he asked this question. In my mind, it's like in the spelling bee. I don't know if you've ever seen the national spelling bee. When, when they're, you can tell that this person doesn't know how to spell a word, they ask you, well, what is the meaning of the word? Like the meaning is going to help you spell the word. And so that's what this guy asked. Well, what exactly, who exactly is my neighbor that I'm supposed to love? This is the bare minimum question. Who is the bare minimum standard here? And so Jesus in verse 30 says, well, you know what? That question you're asking me reminds me of a story I heard once. And there was a man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, traveling on the Jericho Road. I've been on the Jericho Road many times. It is a 17-mile stretch that drops about 3,000 feet in elevation. It is a very dangerous road in that day, in Jesus' day. It was a narrow road. Have you heard that song? On the Jericho Road, there's room for just two. No more, no less, just Jesus and you. It was a very dangerous road. It went up and down. Even though you were constantly going down, you were going up and down. Even though you were going down kind of like the stock market this week, going up and down, but still going down. Anyway, it went through tight ravines. There was a particular part of the trail of not the, 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 the Jericho Road that was called the Pass of Blood. So it was like the Orange Blossom Trail of the Jericho Road. <clears throat> and so they got to this place, and in verse 31, it said that this guy who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho was stripped, beaten, robbed, and left for dead, half dead. He was helpless and he was dying. And so Jesus said that this guy's on the side of the road. And so by chance, a priest walks by. And by chance, a Levite walks by. And they see this man in his condition. And here's something interesting about these guys. Yes, we can get the whole idea that they, these are religious people. You have the priest and you kind of have the JV priest here, the Levite. You kind of have the lead pastor. And then you have kind of like the student pastor here. Uh, that was a joke over there. I was just kidding. I heard you over there, Mike. Uh, so both of them had jobs. Both of them had jobs. Both the priest and Levite had jobs that required that they help poor people. Did you know that? See, a lot of people, don't, we don't understand that. But these guys, both the priest and the Levite, one of their jobs on their job description was to distribute alms to the poor in Jerusalem. Helping the poor has always been a part of Judaism and always been a part of Christianity. And so these guys, essentially, yes, they were religious, but they were also social workers. They, they had a job to help hurting people. So that was their job, but these guys were not only, that was their job, but they were also smart because they saw this guy, and if he's half dead, that means he's not totally dead, just in case you were wondering. And if he's half dead, that means that it probably hasn't been very long since this beating took place. If it hasn't been very long since this beating took place, it could mean that the robbers could be nearby, and if they help this guy, they may be in the gutter with this guy. Can't do it. But also, these guys were holy men, and if this guy was in fact dead, even though the Bible says that he was half dead, but just in case he was dead, if they were to touch him, they would have been contaminated and defiled and would have had to go on a seven-day quarantine. Okay? Okay. This guy may have COVID. We're not going near. <laughs> so the Bible says that both these men passed on to the other side. They sidestepped 
and they walked around. They didn't want to be delayed. They didn't want to be involved in danger. They thought, well, maybe someone better equipped that has more time will come and help this person. Or maybe they said, you know what, this guy should have known better. He knew that going down this road by the pass of blood was risky. He got what he deserved. They just kept going. Now, Jesus is telling this story. You have to understand, we, this is a very familiar parable to us. Jesus is telling this story to a Jewish audience, to a Jewish man. And then he says something that seems to be so just out of the way. But a Samaritan. When the lawyer heard the word Samaritan, it was like a curse word. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. I mean, hated each other. It was racial, it was religious, and it was deep. It was historical. For the Jewish lawyer to hear just the word Samaritan, he was thinking the worst, most evil thoughts imaginable. When he heard of the Samaritan, he probably said to himself, you know, the only good Samaritan is a dead one. And yet the Bible says, and yet Jesus says here, that this guy, the Samaritan, saw this guy who was half-beaten on the side of the road, stripped completely naked, hurting, dying, came to where this guy was, saw him, looked at him, and had compassion or had pity. The word there, compassion or pity, is one of the well-used words in the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, to explain Jesus' feelings towards you and I. Compassion. Splagma. The word here literally means pity from your deepest soul, a love so deep-seated that it comes from your gut. Jesus here, in this, using this word compassion, is talking less about an action you choose and more about an emotion you can't control. So as a parent, if you've ever seen your child hurting, that feeling that you have deep within your gut is compassion. You're hurting for them. So because of this compassion, it was love here in action, and he binds this guy's wounds, cleans him, puts him on his own animal, which we assume maybe was a horse or a camel or a donkey or something, takes him to the Holiday Inn of Jericho, stays the night with the guy, mending his wounds, then opens the line of credit, talks to the innkeeper, and says, whatever this man needs, here are two denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. Here are two days' wages. You work an entire day, you get a denarii. A day's wage. Here are two days' wages. He had to work two days to get these two denarii. Here is this, because I don't want this guy to be in debt because he stayed at the Holiday Inn. Why was that something important? Because if this guy would have just left him there in that end, in, and he had, and this man who was in recovery would have incurred a debt that he couldn't repay, you know what would have happened to him? He would have been sold to slavery to pay the debt. That's going to be important in a moment. But here we see this Samaritan who didn't know the guy who put his own life at risk for the guy, helped this man holistically, emotionally, physically, and medically, and then paid the full cost for his recovery. And so then Jesus asked this question to the lawyer. You scholar of the law. Of these three men, 
who proved to be a neighbor? The lawyer, probably catching on at this moment, said the one who showed mercy. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. Not the priest, not the Levite, but the one who showed mercy. The one who had compassion, the one who saw the need, the one who met the need at a great personal risk, sacrifice, and cost. And so Jesus' answer to the question, who is my neighbor, is answered in this particular story. And the answer is this, who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? Who is mine? Anyone around you who is in need is your neighbor. That's the answer. Being a good neighbor is meeting the concrete human needs of those around you, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they believe, regardless of what they look like, and regardless of how they live. Loving people who are far from God in such a way as this is an opportunity to share the gospel because they're going to look at you and say, why in the world are you doing this for me? But what the lawyer here was asking in his rebuttal question to Jesus of who is my neighbor is he was asking the question, Jesus, what is the limit to my love for a neighbor? And you and I do the same thing. Tim Keller in his message on this passage says that we limit how we love each other, how we love our neighbor in three ways. Here's how we limit it. Number one, we limit it in the who. What I found is that you and I don't mind helping people who are like us. We don't mind loving people who we like, and we don't mind helping people who like us. It's natural to love and give to people that are like you and that you like and that like you because you can identify with them. But in this story, this Samaritan helped a Jewish man. He crossed racial lines, deep-seated racial and religious lines so that he could be a neighbor to help anyone who is in need. This would be like... AOC, seeing Donald Trump on the side of the road and helping him. You think about that. This would be like a Jewish man from Israel seeing an Islamic imam from Iran on the side of the road and him helping him. And the question we have to ask ourselves is that we want to limit the who. We, want, we don't mind helping those that we like. But will we be a neighbor to someone who fundamentally opposes who we are? You know, if the past few years have taught us anything, our nation is deeply divided. There is a deep-seated hatred of people on the basis of the color of their skin. There is a deep-seated hatred on the basis of who they voted for in the ballot box. There's a deep-seated hatred over so many tertiary issues, and we are so divided because we, we have divided people of those that we like and those that we don't like, and so we'll help those that we like, but we won't help those we don't like because we may fear that if we help them, they may actually oppose us more. But Jesus here is teaching us that our neighbors are not those who deserve mercy. Our neighbors are those who need mercy. We want to limit the who, but... Jesus doesn't limit the who here, and he's not limiting the who to this lawyer. He's saying here, this, he gives the most visible, visceral illustration possible that there is no limits to the who. But the second limit is the when. When? Well, the priest and Levite just walked on by. 
Maybe in their minds, it was just completely inconvenient time. They were late for a very important date. No time to say hello, goodbye. They're late, they're late, they're late. Or maybe they thought, you know what? This guy deserved what he got. You know, here's what I found for a lot of people, even myself. I don't mind helping people when it's not their fault. You understand? But if it is their fault, if they brought it on themselves, then they should just live with the consequences. Now, listen, there's some truth that probably we should let people live with their consequences, okay? There are times that we should do that. Love sometimes is tough. But here's a guy here in this story. This Samaritan is someone who could have been, who could have absolutely believed that the other guy on the road that was beaten deserved what he got. I mean, if there's anybody that could have just said, you know what, this guy deserved what he got. That foolish Jew should have not been on this road alone at this time of day. So I don't have time for this joker. But think about this. If a person is in a bad situation through their own fault, doesn't the gospel teach us to help them? Because isn't that what Jesus did for us? We want to limit the who and we want to limit the when, but Tim Keller says we also want to limit how much. The priest and the Levite just walked by because of the risk and the cost that was involved. Maybe they, maybe they said, you know, I just can't afford to help this guy at this time. And maybe some of you, you say the same thing. You know, I can't afford to help people. I, I just can't do it. It's too much risk. But you see here that the Samaritan risks everything, and he's willing to pay for anything this guy needs. And I also found in my own life, I, listen, I'm, I'm on the altar right there with you in this sermon, that most people don't mind giving as long as they don't have to suffer because they gave. In other words, we don't want to bear anyone's burden if it actually is a burden to us. Like, let's just think about it in giving to the church. I don't mind giving spare time and pocket change to the things of God, but if it really makes me have to think that I can't buy a Frappuccino anymore, I don't think I can do that. To be a good neighbor often means that we have to bear the burden of the other person. Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what Jesus meant to his disciples, because remember, they're watching this and they're hearing this story just as you are, and that's what Jesus meant when he said denying yourself. When I told you we preached on that message about denying oneself, in a sense, it means to deny yourself the control of your life, but in another sense, it means denying yourself of something for the sake of the kingdom. The priest and the Levite crossed over to the other side, but the Samaritan crossed over the party lines. He saw the man and he didn't think twice. He cared about the man, got near the man, got dirty helping the man and didn't care about the cost. He loved this man enough not to leave him like he was. Think about that. Church, we will never love our neighbors from a distance. You got to get down with them. You know, our ministry for Central Florida and our new director, Jennifer Campos and uh, she starts next Sunday. We're excited about that ministry, but you know what that means for our church? There's going to have to be a culture change here because it, it can't just be us giving money and praying. we got to actually go and be the hands and feet to those prayers and get out in the city. We can't limit the who or the when or the how much because Jesus didn't. Now, here's the last question. Who is the ultimate neighbor? Well, must I do to inherit eternal life? Who is my neighbor? Who is the ultimate neighbor? It's not, 
it's seen in that question, like who proved to be the neighbor? But Jesus looks at this guy and, and the guy says, listen, who is, the, Jesus says, who is the one that proved to be the neighbor of these three guys? And the guy couldn't even say Samaritan. He just said, the guy showed mercy. And so Jesus looked at him and says, you go and do likewise. And, and the, the, the conversation ends, right? The lawyer doesn't have much to say. He knows within himself that he can't love people that way. And he's like in his mind saying, who lives like this? Who's compassionate like this? Now, here's what I want you to understand. This guy was a moral guy. This guy was a nice guy. I don't know, sometimes we get this idea that, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were just self-righteous pains in the neck. And some of them were, but he was a moral guy. But here's what you have to understand. That you can't legislate this kind of love. Moral people may love their neighbor because they're commanded to do it. You may this morning, because of this message, you may want to be more involved in serving here in this church or serving the community because this message gives you that guilty feeling. It's kind of like when, you watch on, when you're watching television and for that 60-minute commercial, they show you starving children somewhere or they show you issues that are, you just are so visceral to you that in that moment, you say to yourself, God, I'll do anything. I'll give whatever they need at this moment if I just can not feel this bad anymore. But here's what you have to understand. Moral legislation and guilty feelings will not be enough to sustain this kind of love for other people very long. Morality can make you a little generous, but it won't get you all the way. See, love is the kind of thing that either you do naturally or you don't. For example, if you really love something, you don't need to be commanded to love it. No one has to command me to love my wife. No one has to command me to love my kids, and no one has to command me to love the University of Kentucky basketball. You just don't. No one has to tell me you need to eat. No one needs to tell me you need to take a nap. No one needs to tell me you need to work out today. Why? Because I love doing those things. But if you don't love something, no command will ever change that. I hate camping. I hate it. I hate Duke basketball. You might coerce me to go camping and while camping, cheer for Duke basketball. But no command you ever give me will ever make me love it. You can command me to do a lot of things that I don't want to do, and that doesn't mean I'll love it. I may do it. See, the lawyer here was trying to set a trap for Jesus, but Jesus Lee was lovingly setting a trap for him. And you'll see it in how Jesus tells his story. I'm going to do this as, as quick as I can, but where does Jesus put the lawyer in this story? Notice who he makes the hero of the story. The lawyer is not the hero in the story. You understand that? Why? Because the Samaritan's the hero. The Samaritan is not robbed, the Jew. The Jewish man is robbed. The Samaritan didn't pass by. The Jewish, religious, the Jewish religious leaders passed by. Jesus here in telling the story is making it clear that the lawyer and his people are not the hero of the story. Like, think about this. If the lawyer was the hero, if the Jewish person was the hero of the story, then maybe this lawyer's sitting there thinking, you know what, if I saw a Samaritan on the side of the road, stripped completely naked, uh, beaten up, half dead, you know what I would have done? I would have just ran him over with my horse and finished the job. 
The hatred was so much against the Samaritans that it was beyond imagine. So Jesus doesn't put the Israelite as a hero. What Jesus does is he puts the Israelite on the road and the Samaritan as the hero. Why? Stay with me. Don't leave me. If you're watching online, we're still in this. So that the lawyer could see himself. Jesus wanted this man to see in this story that he was the man that needed mercy. He needed to be saved by someone who owes him nothing but rejection and hate. Jesus wanted this man to identify with the helpless man so that he could see just how helpless and vulnerable and hopeless he was. He wanted this man to understand that he could not earn eternal life. So the question is, who's the ultimate neighbor? Remember, this story is told as Jesus is on his way to the cross. Who is the ultimate good Samaritan? Jesus is. Jesus came to our rescue. We were not half dead. We were totally dead. Jesus owed us nothing but rejection, yet he came to our place on the road with compassion. Jesus did not risk his life. Jesus gave his life. Jesus paid our debt to keep us out of slavery forever. Jesus is the good neighbor. Like a good neighbor, Jesus is there. So what do we do with this? Stay with me. God's not after rule followers. Do you hear me? God's not after rule followers. He wants people who love like he loves. And you'll never love like he loves by following the law. You will only love like he loves when you've experienced his love. You know the golden rule? Not whoever has the gold makes the rules, but what's the golden rule? Jesus is doing to others as you would have them do to you. It's a golden rule. Well, if you read the, the New Testament a little bit further in, the Apostle Paul upgrades that to the platinum rule, where he says, do none to others as Jesus has done for you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. We do not love our neighbors to earn eternal life. We earn, we love our neighbors because at the center of our faith is a man dying on a cross for people who abused and mistreated him. See, unlike the lawyer from Jesus' story, we do not love our neighbors because we have to do great things in order to be saved. But we love our neighbors because something great has already been done to save us. So I'll end with this. Until you and I see ourselves on the side of the road, stripped, beaten, on a highway to hell. Until we see that that was us, and then Jesus came to rescue us, we'll never be the type of neighbor Jesus has called us to be. Until you see yourself as helpless and hopeless, And he rescues you. You're never going to rescue anyone else. See, the question is not just who is my neighbor, but the question is who has been the greatest neighbor to me? Jesus has been the greatest neighbor. I want to challenge our church to something this month. There's a lot of challenges this month. 
Here's one of the biggest ones I want to give you. So I want you to find some time this month to show genuine kindness to your neighbor. To whatever that looks like for them. It could be your immediate neighbor who lives around you in your neighborhood. It could be your neighbor at work. It could be your neighbor at school. It could be your neighbor in life. But I want you to do something intentionally kind for them with an opportunity maybe to invite them to join you for Easter or a way to point the gospel to Jesus to them. But I want to challenge you this month to do that because you have no idea. You have no idea. My granddaddy, Alan Brumbach, became a believer because of his next-door neighbor, Howard Prather, lovingly pointing him to Jesus Christ. Day after day, Howard Prather showed my granddad, who wasn't the nicest guy, love and kindness. And finally, in the front yard of my granddaddy's house in Somerset, Kentucky, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. My granddad got saved in his late 50s. And as a kid, I remember riding in his truck. And I never will forget on our way to church. And I never will forget that one time he says, you know what, Alan? I'm thankful that God put Howard Prather next door to me. Do you realize that maybe God has put you in somebody's life right now that is meant to point them to Jesus? Could be your family member, could be your next door neighbor, could be someone you share a cubicle with at work, it could be someone at school. See, until you see that you were once on the side of the road and Jesus rescued you, you'll never have the courage. You'll never have the resolve and you'll never have the willpower to share the love of Jesus with them. But when you remember that that was me and he rescued me, then it doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't matter when it is, And it doesn't matter how much it costs. I want to love them because Jesus loves me. And if you're here today and you don't know that love of Jesus, there is not a mother, sister, friend, or brother that loves you like Jesus can. He proved his love for me when he died on Calvary. Oh, the love of Jesus. You can know that today. Would you bow with me? Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would do what I cannot do, that your Holy Spirit would move in this room, convict us of our sins, Father, convince us of Jesus, confirm to us our salvation, and compel us to go out across the street or around the world to share love with our neighbor. And Father, I pray right now because I have no doubt on my mind that there are people watching online or people in this room that do not have a relationship with you. That Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would convict them and make them miserable and not let them sleep until they give their life to you. And may that be at this moment. If you're in this room this morning and are online, you're watching and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, He's here. You can trust Him as your Savior right now, just as you are, just where you are. You can ask Him to forgive you of your sins. You can ask Him to save you. And I promise you on the authority of God's Word, He is the Good Samaritan. Because I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. 
very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. You can be safe. Trust him today. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.